Radio. The Meaning of Sexuality. A talk by Father Daniel McCann at the Immaculata Mission School 2016, held at the Lee Scout Centre in Hobart, Tasmania. And as we were talking about before, the love that we have is the greatest witness that we have been made to live forever. The fact that we love is a very sign of the fact that we were not made to die, but rather that our love has to go beyond the grave, has to point back to the source of all love, which is God. Has to point back to the source of all love, which is God. Now, you may ask, why did I start with this story about my sister? And the reason I started with the story about my sister is because having had um, a sibling with a mental disability, and I won't pretend, like, my sister was pretty slow. She took a, a, a lot longer to learn basic motor skills and interaction and things than, than most other normal kids would. But what the theology of the body, what the way our sexuality, the way we've been constituted as male and female and to form family members, the very way we've been designed is so that you and I, you and I would grow up with an unconditional acceptance that we would know, please God, from the very beginning of our lives, that it is good that we exist, no matter how we may appear, whether we're missing limbs, whether we struggle a bit mentally, whether we're really good-looking or whether we're not so good-looking. It's beside the point. The way the family has been created by God is so that you and I would, be, would come into being within a communion of love. And that because of the nature of marriage, family and sexuality, pointing back to the divine origin, the divine love of God, that we would be received and perceived as a gift from God, which would therefore do aside with any qualitative judgment we may want to have on the child. And it's precisely this being loved from the very beginning, from the very, from the very moment of our conception, no matter how we may turn out or appear, that is the very thing that enables us to flourish, that enables us to become who we were made to be. This will become a bit clearer as we now start to talk about some of the issues I said we were going to raise um, later on. But what enables us to be truly free in a world which is full of sin, brokenness and weakness, and we, we all know how many times we fall, we stuff up again and again and again. What enables us, what gives us the hope of becoming saints is not the fact that we're struggling over here in the area of sin and then Jesus is over here on the side of perfection saying, come walk to me and I'll make you perfect. No, it's precisely that Christ is with us in the very midst of our imperfection, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our weakness. And he says, I will walk with you and pick you up every time you fall, every time you fall and together we will go towards the path of sanctity. So now, we've talked a lot about the family, the meaning of the body, um, and now the meaning, of, the meaning of our sexuality. There are many, many acts of affection that we have. Many. There are countless ways to tell people, I love you. 
They can be words. They can be gestures. They can be little acts of affection. All kinds of things. All kinds of manner that you can say to someone, I love you, I hold you in high esteem, etc. But sex says I love you in a completely different order of being. It is at a completely different level. Sex is the one act that contained in its very nature says, I love you, I love you alone. I love you forever. And I am completely yours. Now, why does it say this? No other act, no other act has this exclusivity and indissolubility, unbreakableness contained within it. No other act has it written into its very being. Now, why is this? Well, it is because of the two main elements of sex. The unitive and the procreative. The two go hand in hand. They can't be separated. Sex is unitive in its very procreative nature. And it's truly procreative when it is truly unitive. The two go, the two go hand in hand. I'm going I'm to explain this, explain this in a little more detail now. So, as we've talked about the child, every single human being is a completely unique and utterly unrepeatable individual created once and for all by God. Never been created before and never will be created again. God does not make the same person twice. God is not, as I like to say, not a Hollywood director. He doesn't do sequels. He doesn't, he doesn't find a formula and just cash in on it again and again and again to try and make a lot of money out of it. No, no, once and for all. You have never existed before. There is no other you right now and never will be another one in the future. You are a once in the entire history of the cosmos spark of divine brilliance. And only you can love as you. Only you can give you. No other person in the history of humanity can love the way you love. Girls, the Virgin Mary herself doesn't love the way you love. Now, granted, even at her absolute best, we'll never love as much as she does. But nevertheless, our loving is different. Your loving is different. Guys, St. Joseph, we all aspire to be like him. But no matter how hard he would try, he could never love like you. He could never be the father in the way you are a father. He can never be the brother in the way you are a brother. He can never be the mate in the way you are a mate. He can never be the husband in the way you are a husband. This is very important because when God, when Christ says, I thirst and I thirst for your love, he's not just thirsting for a general amorphous affection from all of humanity. No, he's thirsting for your love, your love, because nobody else can give you. We've already talked about in the first hour how our existence is a gift from God. None of us asked to be here, but we're here. And we're here because we've been loved into being. Why? Because somebody wants us here. 
There isn't a single person here sitting in this room. I don't care what your background is. There isn't a single person here in this room who is not wanted by God, who is not loved by God, who is not precious to God and for whose love God does not thirst. There are no exceptions. No exceptions. So if each individual human life is that unique and that precious to God, then the way we come into being also is very, very important in manifesting this reality to us and explaining this reality to us. When a husband and wife get married and they come together, they pledge lifelong fidelity and exclusivity to each other. And they promise to give themselves totally. Promise to give themselves totally. And from that total willingness to literally lay down their lives for each other, there comes a child, please God, a child comes that is worth even more than the mutual contribution of the two of them. So a total lifelong faithful love is the only love that is worthy of worthy to form a nest if you will in which for such a precious gift in the world to grow. Okay. So that's that that's established that. Okay. So the unitive and the procreative these are very these are very very important things. As I said there are many ways you can say I love you. But only sex says I love you in a way that is of its nature oriented towards creating new life. So what happens? So this is the first issue that's going to come up. The issue of contraception. It's very prevalent. It's very common. And most people, you know, they wouldn't even blink. You're talking about using contraception? Well, yeah, of course we use contraception. I mean, everybody, everyone uses contraception. But what does contraception actually say? If sex says, I am yours, I'm yours alone, and I'm yours forever, and I want to give myself completely to you. Okay. Contraception says, I want you, but I don't want the very thing that sex with you can give me, which no other act can, which is the gift of your fertility. And I'm giving myself to you without giving you the one thing that makes sex unique the one thing that sets it apart from every other act of affection and love, which is precisely the offering of my paternity or my maternity. This is what it's saying. This is what, you're, you're, this is what it's removing. It's removing the most fundamentally distinct act or property of sex. You take, if you, 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 it's, it basically is taking it out. It's forcibly removing it, forcibly removing it. So, in other words, instead of there now being a dynamic of gift and offering, suddenly now, very subtly, but nevertheless very really, there enters a dynamic of taking, or at the very least of borrowing. No real act of giving. He says, this is important. God, if we go by natural processes, does not actually let us control the moment of conception. A married couple, when they engage in sex, do not control conception. All they do is control the environment in which conception may or may not take place. This is very, very important. 
this is very, very important, that it is not a fait accompli, that just because both the husband and the wife happen to be fertile when they engage in marital relations does not necessarily mean it will result in a child. Why? And the reason it is kept separate is so that it will be always clear that the child is a gift and not the product of a series of events that has been actively chosen. So we, we, you know, we put this ingredient in, we put this ingredient in, and boom, out comes a baby. The child is not the end product of a factory procession. Rather, it is the fruit of a willingness to give oneself entirely. What God has designed is that each time a husband and a wife engage in marital relations, they say to each other, Honey, I am yours and I mean it. I am yours. I'm yours for life. And I'm prepared to offer you the one thing that I have that no one else in the entire history of humanity can offer. And that is the gift of my paternity. And you're offering to me the one gift that no one else in the history of humanity can give. And that is your maternity. Nobody else can have your kids. Only you can. Only you can. You've got you, unique and unrepeatable. You have your spouse, unique and unrepeatable. You form a bond that is itself as unique and unrepeatable as the two of you. And lo and behold, all things, all things working well. Children come that are unique and unrepeatable, but could only have been procreated by you two. Nobody else could have done it. Nobody else which is why they are yours. Your children, not as a property, but as a gift. A gift, however, that is given for all eternity. Even though you'll only be on this earth for a finite time with your children, they never stop being your children, even after death. Forever in heaven, they will still be your sons and daughters, just as you will always be the sons and daughters of your parents. That doesn't change. When God gives a gift, he doesn't take it back. So even my sister dying is not a taking back. It's not a taking back at all. In fact, in some ways, she's now even more of a gift to us than she was while she was alive. Far more powerful, far more free to interact, almost infinitely more in love with our Lord than I'll ever be. And such a source of grace and love. So God doesn't really take away. So this is important. So if we forcibly separate the unitive from the procreative, we then reduce sex down to the level of just any other act of affection. So what now has become the prime place has become the obviously very beautiful and wonderful emotions and feelings and stuff that get attached to it. And these are good things. I mean, they've been put there by God. They've been put there by God. But when they're taken to the extent that we're having dessert without the main course, and that's become our diet, then, as I say, that dynamic of use creeps in. And all of a sudden, what starts to happen? What suddenly becomes important? Things like sexual performance. Things like... I, if I don't do this or I don't do that, he or she will leave. All of a sudden, it becomes a dynamic of urge quelling. It becomes fundamentally a dynamic of use and taking. As I said, it can initially creep in subtly. 
But little by little, it builds. Little by little, it builds. So, if we disconnect the fundamental link between sex and procreation, and if, I know, if, if we tear that apart and we no longer see them as going together necessarily, then a lot of things become possible. The first thing, without that fundamental link to procreation, fidelity suddenly becomes optional. Why? Because the thing that most says forever in sex is gone. So it becomes very, very easy now to not see that I have to be with one sexual partner for the rest of my life. It becomes very easy to see. The other thing, and this is a very practical thing, things like contraception have been disastrous in terms of getting guys to commit. It is absolutely disastrous. If men know that they can have strings-free, responsibility-free sex with women, then there is going to be no incentive for them to stick around or settle down. Which is why there are so many guys today that are fed income commitment phobic. Because it's too easy. Maybe you've heard of the expression. It's a little bit it's a little bit blunt, but it makes a very valid point. Because they'd say, why would the guy buy the cow when he's getting the milk for free? It's a rough expression, but it makes a point. Once you disconnect sex from its link with responsibility, or at the very least, willingness to be responsible, then so many other things go out the window. Okay, so fidelity goes out. When fidelity goes out, when, we, when now longer, there's no longer this link between, between sex and procreation, it's, it's, it's very, very interesting. So now we're having sex without babies. So sex without babies, all right? What is very interesting is that not long after contraception became a culturally established phenomenon, that instead of just sex without babies, we now have the phenomenon of babies without sex. It's very interesting. Babies without sex. Because, because now there is a very natural, obviously, desire, profound desire, a good and holy desire to have children. It is a good thing, all right? But when we play around with the unitive and procreative nature of sex, then what happens is, is that we also play around with our ability to perceive children as a gift, to accept children however they may come. Now, now, with sex sort of becoming more and more an indoor recreational sport rather than an act of total self-giving love, as that becomes more and more prevalent, then children, because they're no longer seen as the fruit of total self-giving love of a man and a woman, once that, dis- once that connection has been removed, now, now they can be perceived as something that I need to have, something that is my right. I have a right to children. I have a right to be a mum. I have a right to be a dad. And I will use any means whatsoever to fulfill that desire, to fulfill that desire. 
So now what this brings me up to is the next issue. Now, it's a, it's a, very, it's a very important one. And I want to say from the outset, we're going to talk about, so is IVF. I have to make absolutely 1,000% clear. There is no difference whatsoever in the dignity of a child born of IVF compared to a child who was conceived naturally. Absolutely none whatsoever. They are every bit, every bit as human, every bit as divinely loved and willed. The problem with IVF is not the child that's conceived. That's not the problem at all. But the process through which it has happened has obscured so many important and sacred things. So, firstly, the child comes as a result of a calculated scientific project between the husband and the wife. Okay, It does not come through an act of laying oneself down. It does not come as a result of that intimate, close union that happens in marital love. In fact, there is a profound disconnection from it. The other thing is that also in the IVF process, there are many, many surplus embryos conceived. In other words, surplus children. And by surplus, we mean that they will never be implanted, they will never be brought to term, and they will never see the light of day. Either they're put on ice, or they're simply destroyed, or they're put for scientific research purposes, which is a complete use, an utter waste of human life. Also, the children that do get implanted and are brought to term, as I said, and I have to read, I have to say this so strongly, the child in themselves, there is absolutely nothing wrong with them. And there is nothing wrong with their dignity and everything. I have to keep reinforcing this. But what has happened though, what has happened is that the parents have now made a calculated choice. We want this one rather than all these other ones. And usually because this one doesn't have traits of this, this one's got a lower probability of catching that. This one, in other words, we've got a designer baby. That child now has to carry the burden of being the designer perfect child for its parents. Its parents have already put so many conditions on its existence. There have already been so many factors now that have narrowed down to why we choose to bring this one to term and why we don't choose this one. That child now carries a very, very heavy burden. And with that calculated decision, it becomes very hard for the parents to truly perceive that child as a gift from God. Now, God doesn't break his own rules. So if you match a sperm and an egg together in the right conditions, a child will be conceived. God does not go back on that. So does that mean that child is any less loved or wanted by God? No, God always works within our human decisions, be they good or bad. He always works with them. However, we also have to deal with the consequences that flow from those actions because God doesn't stop those consequences either. Okay? So, this child now carries the weight of really what is fundamentally an unjust expectation. Why? Because they haven't been accepted unconditionally. 
They're the result of a calculated choice on the part of their parents. And that vision back towards the origin of all life and love, God, is absent. So this is why they're the two big reasons why there is a problem, why the, why, why the church says that IVF is not illicit means of bringing new life into the world. It's not that we don't want you to have children, for crying out loud. And Catholic families were legendary for being massive. Take a look at mine. Uh, but it's not, it's not that. But it's because of who and what human life is and who you are. So that's, so that's the biggest. So, uh, so IVF and contraception. Okay. So now here's, here's, here's the, the, the next issue, which is one that's extremely, extremely uh, prevalent and prominent today. And certainly there's been a lot of um, debate about it down here in Tasmania. And that is things like the issue of same-sex marriage. Well, this whole issue of same-sex marriage and uh, etc. has only come at the very end of a long process. We haven't gotten here overnight. It's, it's, sort of, it's sort of like the next step along, uh, along, a road, uh, uh, along a road that actually has its own internal logic. Okay, you separate the link between sex and procreation. You separate that. Then you remove the need for fidelity. If sex has nothing beyond the horizon then the mutual pleasuring of the spouses or the husband and wife, if it's been reduced to the element of pleasure, then why does it have to be between a man and a woman? Why? Why is it suddenly the sole prerogative of men and women? Why can't it be between two men? Why can't it be between two women? After all, it's just mutual pleasure giving. If that's what it is, then it's very hard to argue against that logic. And indeed, if that's all that sex is, if that's truly all that it is, then it would not be fair to deny it to same-sex couples. But that's not what it is. That's not what it's, that's not what it's about. So we have that, we have that, um, that disconnection that's, that's there. Now, the issue of with same-sex attraction, I'm speaking as someone who has good friends and relatives who deal, who, who, battle, who battle with same-sex attraction. And it is, it is something that while I was studying in Rome, it moved me very, very greatly. Because I wondered first, you know, how do I be a good friend? How do I be a good friend? How do I, how do I love them? What am I supposed to do? And, and then, how do I be a good priest? How do I, good, how do I be a good priest? So what I'm going to do is just share quickly... I think it's important just to get some insights because you hear a lot of things. Now, most of my study was done more to do with male same-sex attraction. It may or may not come as a surprise to you, but male same-sex attraction occurs at double the rate of female same-sex attraction. If you like, there are twice as many men at any one time living the gay lifestyle as there are females. It's actually much easier for a man to develop same-sex attraction than it is for a female. And that is because of a number of factors, a number of factors. For a, fir- for a start, it actually is more of a struggle for a boy to adopt and own his masculinity than it is for a woman to adopt and own her femininity. The guy has to make one extra step, which girls never have to make. And it can be found firstly in 
detachment from one's mother and attachment to one's father. This is a process that happens. It's meant to happen very naturally. So in a, nor, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a healthy functioning family, in a healthy functioning family, this is what is supposed to happen. When the child is born or when the child is conceived, its whole being and identity is 100% identified with the mother, be it a boy child or a girl child, doesn't matter. It's completely identified with the mother. The mother, as I've said many, many times before, in her very being is an incarnate yes to the child, is it to the needs of the child, to the goodness of the child. She tells the child, you are good. Before anything else, your very being is a blessing. That's what the child gets. And that's why it's completely attached to the mother. And indeed, for the first few months of life, the child's not even aware that its being is actually separate from its mother's. But then gradually it comes to where, no, I, I am a separate being. Then if that is a boy child, then the boy starts to realize eventually that his difference from mum actually bears a similarity to dad. And so the voice of the father at this point becomes very, very important. It actually starts to call the boy away from the mother, not in a man, no, no, separate, but to call the boy towards himself. And this happens very early on. We're talking like the first 18 months of life that already the boy in, a, in particular distinguishes quite markedly between its mother and its father and how, it inter, how he interacts and responds. So what happens is, is that every boy goes in some way, shape or form. Once again, none of this is conscious. It all sort of happens by instinct, by, by nature. Starts to manifest his like masculinity. He looks for approval. Nothing matters more to a guy than approval from other guys. Even from the very beginning, us blokes need to stick together. It's true. We, we, male, male peer groups are incredibly important. And, guy, and already the boy from the first couple of years of life is looking towards dad or looking towards a father figure and saying, look, here I am. Here's me. Do you approve of me? Was I good doing that? And it can be anything from little acts of communion, taking its first steps from, you know, doing anything. But it's always looking, looking for approval, affirmation, love. And if it gets it, if it gets affirmed, if the boy gets affirmed, if it gets loved, if it gets approved, it gets called out and starts to detach from the mother. Now, if the mum, if there is a healthy relationship between mum and dad, then actually the mum encourages this and she starts to push the boy over towards father. She starts to push the boy. And the best way she does that, and believe me, kids pick up on it, is if the boy perceives that mum loves dad and loves dad and his masculinity, then he is more than willing to walk the path over to dad. And he will. There is a mutual loving push-pull effect that happens between the parents. And then, of course, then the boy then starts to really model himself on his dad. Pretty soon he's in the bathroom shaving, you know, with uh, doing, you know, well, I mean, there's a caricature. But these are, these, these are, these, these are the normal processes. Then he grows up and then he gets into primary school. And you know what are the ickiest, worst, you know, most disgusting, awful things on the planet are for a six-year-old boy? Girls, absolutely. And guess what? Vice versa. There is nothing more awful than boys for a six-year-old girl. And you know what? This is extremely healthy. Boy germs and girl germs are a very, very healthy game. It is a healthy game. Why? Because what is it doing? It is the sexes distinguishing themselves 
And it is this very distinguishing themselves at this early point that precisely allows them to come back together again when puberty hits. They have to push each other away before they can come back together. So you want the boys, for the most part, to be hanging with the boys and the girls, for the most part, to be hanging with the girls. There's nothing wrong with, you know, a bit of interaction at all. But for the most part, that this is what you want to have happening. So what happens when puberty kicks in? If you sort of like, when the boy has his first Adam, whoa, man, moment, when suddenly those girls that have been nothing but icky and nothing but full of cooties have suddenly become the most attractive, mysterious things on the planet. And how did that happen? Just last week, I wasn't the least bit interested in them. And all of a sudden, that girl with the pigtails, the braces and the freckles and everything that I used to fight with from down the road has turned into what I think is Miss Universe. You know, believe me, it happens. It happens, you know. So like that, 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 that happens. So there's that, there's that attraction. Why? Because now that the boy has become conscious of this new part of him that was only latent up until this point, which is his sexuality, he suddenly realized he's discovered a whole new meaning to his being, a whole new meaning to his body. He realizes that the parts of himself that he's always taken for granted suddenly have a meaning and a purpose, and that is found in the other sex. That is why they are beautiful. So suddenly his drive pushes him towards that which is other to him. Because he realizes, once again, without putting any words on it, he realizes that women, they're equal, but they're different. And that difference is a mystery. And that difference is a gift. And that difference is what makes them so attractive and beautiful. So, but what happens though? If for whatever reason there has been some breakdown early on in that identification with either the father or father figure. Once again, it's important to note that just because a guy does not have a dad on the scene does not mean he's automatically going to wind up same-sex attracted. It doesn't mean at all. But as long as there has been some important male role model that's been able to take an active part in his life, sort of, sort of growing up. Um, uh, what happens if there's been some break? And it can be anything. It can be because, honestly, there's been an abusive relationship. So if father's distant or abusive or father's absent or whatever, it can, it, can, it, can, it can happen that way. Sometimes, though, it happens in perfectly normally functioning families where, for whatever reason, there is some, there is some breakdown. And certain events that, for one kid, may be completely normal or may cause a little bit of disruption, but then they get over it very quickly, can be seriously traumatic for another boy, perhaps if he's more of a sensitive temperament or, 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 or whatever. So if there is some breakdown and the boy perceives that his masculinity or whatever is being rejected or that he somehow does not match up or that he somehow can't compete or that he somehow doesn't fit in, with all that, then what happens is, is that the masculinity triggers a shame response. Once again, this is not something they do consciously. They don't sit down and rashly think it out. But this, is, this, is, this is sort of what happens at a deep emotional level. It triggers a shame response. And so then they tend to retreat. Some, often the boy will then tend to retreat back to the world that they know, which is the world of, of women. It's the world of their mothers. It's the world they've come from. It's the world we've all come from. 
It's the world they've come from, so it's the world they go back to. And they become very good. They are very good. They understand. They know how to, know how to talk with them. They understand the way they think. They're very good at engaging in conversations. This is very often, very often what happens. So men, their own world, if you will, always remains a bit of a mystery to them. It, um, they, it, they, um, they're always attracted to it. Why? Because it's them. It's them. And it always pulls them. But once again, they never feel that they will entirely, perhaps entirely match up. And what I mean by this is, is that especially when they get to the teenage years, especially around, you know, 12, 13, 14, everything happens a little bit younger these days, but say roughly around 13, 14 years of age, is that what can happen is, is that they have a perceived, or how should I put it, um, gender inferiority complex. Now, what, it, what, what you mean by that is they don't feel that they're not men. They do. They know they are. They don't feel like that they're, um, that they're, um, yeah, they're not, they're not, it's not feelings of like, okay, I'm, a, I'm a, a woman trapped in a man's body or anything. It's not, it's not that. But it's just that I know I'm a guy, but something about me does not allow me to fully attach and own my being one of the boys, my being a guy. Um, and I say, and this is a very complex dynamic and it takes place in many, many different forms amongst guys. So each guy's journey is very important. I am only laying out here the general structure, but every single guy's journey who's ever dealt with this is completely, it's unique to them and how the whole thing had a genesis within them. Okay. So, um, um, so they get to this point. So what happens when their sexuality kicks in? Well, firstly, for most of them, it doesn't actually push them directly towards other guys initially. And for most people, even for many teenagers that wind up, you know, being attracted to the other sex, their orientation oscillates and they will go through periods where they are more or less attracted to guys and when they are more or less attracted to girls. And it tends to swing backwards and forwards. So what suddenly becomes very important then is how they respond to the oscillating attractions. And this is where things like discipline in the fantasy life is so important. Discipline in the fantasy life is so, so important. So the things, things are also Now, why are they feeling attracted to guys in the first place? Well, it's funny because they're now being pushed towards that which is psychologically other to them, which is the world of men, just their own, it's their own world, if you will. So they've been pushed towards that. And what happens is they have these deep emotional unmet needs and wounds that are down here. And what happens when they develop, especially if they allow a fully-fledged same-sex attraction to develop, is that they confuse the sex drive for the meeting of those unmet emotional male love needs that are there. And it's a very easy confusion to make. Why? Because there is nothing more intimate than sex. There is nothing that makes you feel more close. So that sets in, which is why now I step back and say, okay, now the fantasy life is really important, especially in the teenage years. When things are swinging, controlling what you see, especially in the area of pornography and things like that, very, very important. Also, the area of masturbation, really, really important, that kind of, that kind of thing. And, of course, acting out, be it with guys or girls. 
in these sensitive years, if too much indulgence is given to what we call homoerotic attractions, it can strangle and ultimately kill any latent heterosexual attraction that is there. Because guys are so visually wired. And the images that we take in have a profound impact on us. They stick. They stick. And they leave a lasting imprint. This is why I say thank God God made women so beautiful. Because we are so visual. And he was very smart. He made us the ugly ones. (laughs) And thank God usually looks isn't the number one thing. On a girl's list, otherwise, we wouldn't be, wouldn't, not many of us would get married. <laughs> but, uh, but guys, you know, um, but guys are very visual. And God knows that. So he gives us the gift of you lot, you girls. It is. No, it's a real, it, is a, it, is a, it, is a, it is a real gift. But because of that, that same dynamic applies whether or not the guy is attracted to women or is attracted to other guys. That same, that same nature, that male nature is still there. It can't be gotten rid of. It's, it's there. So then what happens? So then, so then if they start indulging more and more and more, then those attractions become more and more solidified. But what happens is in those actions, in those moments of engaging in homosexual encounters, then what happens is in those moments they start to feel, in those moments, this is why it is so powerful, because in those moments they feel the love or they feel they control, or they feel they possess that masculine affection and emotional support that they've always needed. But the thing is, is that is ultimately an illusion. And it leaves them feeling as empty, if not even more empty, than they did before they started. And because ultimately they're seeking themselves when they're engaging in these acts and not seeking the other person, they can never be fulfilled. Because basically you've got two guys essentially with the same emotional wound, trying to fill each other out of their mutual emptiness. So it's an exercise in futility from the beginning. Even if emotionally it feels really powerful and wonderful at the time, ultimately it works out. It's futile. But can you also see where the connection is now between this and the fact that our sexuality is oriented towards procreation? oriented towards procreation because what happens is is that that is the one that perceives it is with that vision that we're able to perceive the other in their otherness and that we're not simply seeking ourselves but we're also forced to seek the good of the other that was father daniel mccann with the meaning of sexuality for more from the immaculata mission school visit cradio.org.au